Kuzari, the reason why we're learning the Kuzari is because there are classic ideas in Jewish philosophy that emerge for the first time in a systematic way in the Kuzari. Not that these ideas don't exist before, but the point of philosophy is to systemize and structure ideas. The Talmud doesn't do that when it comes to Jewish philosophy. Ideas that you interact with on a uh, hashkofic level, hashkofic means like Jewish philosophy, a lot of them originate with the Kuzari. And he was one of the earliest, earliest people to write about it. There's maybe one person who's earlier in a, in a public way, but he's the one that is the most I think, accepted and easily accessible. It's accessible for two reasons. One, it's written as a dialogue, which means you have a bit of a story. It's written in a unique way. The person who wrote the book was a poet and a philosopher, which means you get both sides of the human character inside this work. And there's also something very real about it. We're all on some level on a search for meaning. We wanna make our lives meaningful. And the king in this story is looking for meaning. He has a dream. The story opens up with a king has a dream and an angel comes to the king in a dream and tells the king that his intentions are good, but his actions are not. And thereby the king goes on a journey to try and find a, a yardstick, a truth, a, a anchor to how he should live his life. He knows he has the right intentions, but how should he act? Yes. Would you say that this is, like when we're learning this, this is this is like a good thing to keep in mind for like modern day arguments towards Judaism, or it's it could get you into trouble from arguing from his perspective. Like, meaning, is it you said it was like the first approach? Is it is it one which is good for us to like look up towards, or like we should be cautious with it? So yes and no. The goal and the beauty about the Kuzari is that it's a little bit timeless. When I mean timeless, I'm not to say oh it's Jewish, so it's timeless. No. Maimonides wrote a very famous work of philosophy as well. It's called the Mora Nevuchim, which is the guide to the perplex. Mm. That's not as timeless. Why? Because the Rambam, it's got profound fundamental ideas in Judaism, but it lacks something the Kuzari has. What is that? Rabbi Yehud HaLevi kind of rejected the science of his time as being that which can lead you to ultimate truth. Yeah. Mm. Why is that significant? because that's kind of how we look at things today. We don't go to science to give us our meaning. We go to science for method, for how to approach the world technically. Rabbi Hud Alevi was great with that. How did Maimonides not do that? So, so we'll, we'll get to Maimonides, just to finish Rabbi Hud Alevi. He looked at philosophy as being a tool in his toolkit in approaching the world, but not that which gave him ultimate truth. Maimonides looked at the science of the time as being the truth that he was contending with. So often a lot of the work of Maimonides is in conversation with, okay, I have the Aristotelian structure of reality and I have Judaism. And how do I make sense of both of these worlds? Rabbi Huda Levi was like, I understand what philosophy does, but when philosophy tells me that there is a certain celestial sphere of intellects, how does it know that? I mean, it can give arguments that it thinks it's there, but they're gonna be speculative. I have a really revealed religion. I'm gonna put my money there rather than my money there. Yes, I have to argue that my revealed tradition is true. I have to argue and I'm gonna use philosophical tools to do that, but I'm not going to use philosophy as an end in and of itself. Why is that significant? Because today we don't really look at that science as being ultimate truth, do we? None of you are going to a class in physics and learning about the celestial spheres and the Ptolemaic model of the universe. No, we think that's Shtuya at this point. 
Maimonides didn't look at that as if it was Shtuyat. He looked at that as if it was true. And it's not a criticism of him because in 5,000 years from today, we'll probably have a very different model of the universe. And there's change. Because Rabbi Yehuda Levi almost dealt with Judaism from within itself, it has a certain timelessness to itself. Saying that, you're going to be able to get key Jewish ideas from that. But also saying that there are going to be things that are also going to be a product of his time. So one of the goals of these discussions is for us to pick out the ideas that are going to be more relevant rather than just reading through the Sefer. And it is true, someone who's smarter than myself would be able to pick up more relevant ideas, but we can only deal with what we've got with. <laughs> okay? So the ideas that we discussed, that the king goes on this journey, he meets a Christian and asks the Christian, and there's something very cool about the Rabbi Yehuda Halevi's approach. He approaches a Christian. Now, he doesn't let a Christian give a whole defense of Christianity, but from the king's point of view, the king who's just had an experience. And that's very, that's something very real about Rabbi Yehuda Halevi's description of that is because he believes religious journeys start with experiences. That's how they start. People don't come to religion because of a philosophical proof to God. That doesn't work like that. People can hear the arguments of the existence of God. And, People come to God through an experience. That doesn't mean necessarily an awakening experience that God spoke to you. It might mean either you studied something and you, you felt moved by it, or you, or you feel moved by the Jewish tradition. You feel compelled by the Jewish tradition. You feel compelled by the fact that you had a grandfather who sat you down and told you, investigate this. This is meaningful to me and I want you to pursue it. And you're like, that'll motivate me to look into it more. Experiences are what motivate us, or what move us. Rabbi Yehuda Levi, what he tries to do is try and show that Judaism not only has a national experience that's your ancestry, but there's also a rational foundation for it. And he compares that with Christianity. Christianity also has an experiential story. But Rabbi Yehuda Levi thinks that contradicts reason. God can't be man and person at the same time. You don't get virgin births. They contradict reason, even though they're an experience, which is also very modern of him that he leaves, using the Saxian term, he leaves space for the Christians to be Christians. He doesn't undermine Christianity, which is kind of cool because it's like, yeah, you've got your experience. I don't have your experience. I wasn't bought, and he doesn't mean that he saw that the, the Christians saw the Trinity. He means to the Christian, when he says to the Christian, listen, I wasn't brought up in your framework. In which case, I'm not gonna start using philosophical tools to defend the Trinity. I hear the Trinity and it just sounds contradictory. I'm not going to start defending it philosophically. If I was born a Christian, then maybe I would. Think of the honesty in that approach. If I was a Christian, would I be the greatest Christian, not the greatest, would I be a superbly enthusiastic Christian apologist? Maybe, but that doesn't undermine my position now. One of the biggest or the classical things that when people hear for the first time really shakes them up is when someone says, well, if you were born in Iran, you would be a Muslim probably true. In which case, how sure can you be of your worldview now? That's a bit jarring for people. Rabbi Yehuda Halevi's response to that is that as a Jew in the Jewish tradition, I think I have a good reason to accept this tradition and this experience as my own. But I'm okay with a Christian being a Christian. Not that I think Christianity is true, but a Christian in a Christian context, that's okay. Judaism has a very unique vision when it comes to the rest of the world. We feel the rest of the world has a value, but we have a certain part to play that's unique. And we have a good reason to immerse ourselves in that world. He meets a Christian, he meets a Muslim, both of which he doesn't feel compelling. He also meets a philosopher, 
uh, he originally goes to the philosopher and the philosopher gives him this whole worldview as well. He doesn't find it compelling. And we went through reasons that are developed within the philosophical system as well as within Christianity and Islam. He then talks about the national experience of the Jewish people and uses parables the whole time to illustrate these ideas. The national experience of the Jewish people and why that is a compelling reason to adopt Judaism. These aren't proofs or arguments in the classical sense. It's more like a foundation to accept the experience. My, I didn't experience the Jews standing at Sinai, but it was an experience. Do I have a reason to adopt that experience as my own? It's my ancestry. Do I have a reason to adopt it? He thinks we have a reason to adopt the experience, which means he's not claiming it's like, um, I saw it. And that's why that's something very modern about that. When a person says, do you believe in God? A Jew says, no, I'm committed to the Torah. What does it mean I'm committed to the Torah? It means I have a good reason to adopt that experience as my own. Do I know it's true in the absolute sense? No, how could I? But a Jew's, sorry? You still believe it's true, but you don't know it's true. But it depends what you mean by believe. The way you described it before is kind of like a belief. Yep, then I'm cool with that. If we mean by belief, there is a, a, a I'm adopting a worldview. I think I have good reason to adopt that worldview. And, and, and treat it as my own and immerse myself in it and act as if it's true, then yeah. You wouldn't be like you don't believe it. You know it's not a synonym. The what? Like belief and that whole sentence. Oh, because, for sure. But, but, it sounds like belief. Yeah, then, then we can call that believing. But, but believing isn't knowing. Yeah. When we, and we, we, you could call this sort of belief knowing if you change the definition of knowing. Because often people, when they mean by knowing, they mean they've seen it, they can prove it. This is a historical perspective that we're developing. Which is what Rabbi Yehud Alevi was, and the reason why, once again, why it's so modern is because that works in the modern world. I'm not saying I saw God. I'm saying I'm adopting a historical experience that I am committed to have happened. And to phrasing like that is how Rabbi Yehud Alevi develops things. He then, to jump into the next point, which this will take us to where we are now, he develops, he asks a question, or the king asks him a question, it's like, why the Jewish people, what's special about the Jewish people? which point you have a bit of a problem. How do you account for Jewish chosenness? It's a problem. Why are Jews special? Historically, it's been very tricky. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We believe that in the Torah, which tells us that we're special. What do we mean by we're special? Of a chosen nation. Chosen as in? We're chosen to accept the Torah more than another nation is. Okay, that's good. That's a good answer. Rabbi Huda Levi develops it slightly differently. He said there's something unique about a Jew. And he's, the language he's using is more metaphysical. It's more like a neshama, not quite the way, remember when we say neshama, it's very tricky. Historically, we think about this disembodied bubble. When he uses the word neshama, uh, uh, um, like a soul, it, it's more something more embodied. It doesn't necessarily, it, he, he treats it sort of genetically. He looks at this being this ruach um, uh, eloki, this divine aspect, that started from Adam and works its way down to the Jewish people. Now, what we did in the class is we paralleled that with using the language you were using. You could use this sort of quasi-genetic language, or you could use the language of being summoned, being commanded, being appointed, <coughs> covenant. It's the same sort of thing that passes throughout history. It started with a lot of people, then it worked its way down to the children of Avram. And this divine essence is what makes the Jewish people unique. From his point of view, it gives the Jewish people the ability to have prophecy. But we did discuss, the reason I asked about that outdated, I asked about that outdated question is because last week we discussed that this is like, this idea in particular oh, so right. has so, become, like, isn't something now that you really promote. 
like it's, genetic because genetic. of our historical circumstances and we've just said as a people experience a genocide based off genetics basically yeah. using the language of genetics is a bit ick saying that there's a value to it it gives a certain nobility there are positive sides to using uh hereditary language but there would be something to say to avoid using that's why i used Rav Hirsch as a parallel to talk about you being summoned you being on a specific mission as a jew rather than describing the your hereditary uh, your your um ancestry so, so according to Rav Hirsch it wouldn't be a difference in the person it'll be a difference in the in like the per the purpose driving the life right but you could blur the two but right. if you're a convert, you don't have those genetics. So if you're a convert from Yehuda Halevi's point of view, remember he's talking to a non-Jew. He's talking to the king who's not Jewish yet. He'll convert eventually, but he's not Jewish yet. But yes, from Yehuda Halevi, a cost of his whole system is that a, someone who's converting hasn't got the ability to achieve prophecy. There's a certain potential for prophecy he doesn't have, but his children will have it. Some people say there's like a Jewish soul there, no? So this is isn't what he... That you that once you convert, you adopt the Jewish Because soul. he's a philosopher, yeah. it all has to, he wouldn't do that. Yeah. But you would have um, the more Kabbalistic visions that would say, yeah, you get a new soul and you become Jewish. But why would the children suddenly get that? So his his whole genetic thing is complicated. Where did the genes come in? Uh, it's, it's, it's not classical genes, because it doesn't mean just because you had it, you can get prophecy or you're a good person. Yeah. It's got to do with... Um, for him, it's more complicated right. because he's 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 using the language and the ideas of his time to try and explain why there's something unique and special about a Jew. Yes. Some of the Jewish father. That's a good question. I'm not sure. Maybe they would have a certain potential, but it gets very tricky when we, I, I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe you need both. I don't know. I don't know. It's because it's when we say genetics, they didn't know about Mendel's peas. That's not how he was using the term genetics. And he didn't use the word genetics. He just meant it, it comes along with, but it was also a combination of the, the land and your upbringing. Yeah. We're going for better for once of a better word. He's spoken about spiritual genetics, but it's it's it, there's, it, in an Aristotelian framework, it's all blurred. Just to give the, the lay of the land, Aristotle believed in there were basically different categories of existence. You would have, and the word soul, from his point of view, was the word he used was anima, which means to animate. There's something that animates a plant, but there's something a plant has that an animal has, but an animal has something extra. We know this. We experience that. And they're saying a human has. Human has what a plant has what an animal has, and something extra, reason. And then he said, there's an extra thing, which is the Jewish extra level, which is the ability to prophesize. Now, practically speaking, we don't know many people who can prophesize. We don't know anybody who can prophesize. So it's a bit of a new point at this stage, but it's worth discussing because he's trying to say there's something that calls the Jew specifically. Now, yes, yeah, just, just, sure, please. Our brain also made in the image of God. Of so, so it doesn't sound like So the, the, the reason why I played it out like this is it's not like there's animal sorry plant animal jew no god forbid that's not what he's saying he's saying there's plant animal human being back back to the beginning of adam god created man and image and it's god etc etc you've got that there as a given man is here and then there's the calling of jew yeah. so yeah for sure i mean yeah and, absolutely and I, the thing they're getting is prophecy but we don't really use it. exactly but uh, right 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 you could say that for sure. Outdated tool. I like that. Okay, now we're going to dive into the next stage. Now, what I wanted to talk about here, there's there's another and, and, and once again the the aspect of 
general topics that Rabbi Yehuda Halevi discusses are, are, are quite relevant in terms of us understanding Judaism. Isn't it? Because Judaism is a sort of a, a religion in a, the, the best sense of the word. The ideas, even though they're discussed in an ancient context, you're going to relate to them on a daily basis. For example, the topic I want to talk about now is, is the relationship between imminence and transcendence. Actually, you know what? Because we were discussing uh, this week's parsha, let's let 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 let's break it down uh, before we go there. We call Hashem different names. Mm -hmm. What do we mean by that? The different roles he plays in home. Different worlds. The king asks the question. He says, "What do you mean by the different names of God?" But the king also asked the question, just to, just to open up the beginning here. I'm going to read it. I'm not the best reader, and I read things straight, but so if it doesn't set, but it, when I read it, at least it helps me think about what I want to talk about. So bear with me. Read along as well by yourself, just so the flow makes sense. But Al-Khuzari, should anyone here, you relate that God spoke with your assembled multitude and wrote tablets for you. He wouldn't, he would be, he would be blamed. Did I read that right? He would be blamed for accusing you of holding the theory of personification. I'll explain this in a minute. You, on the other hand, are free from blame because this grand and lofty spectacle seen by thousands cannot be denied. You are justified in rejecting the charge of mere reasoning and speculation. Mm -hmm. What's being said there? Yeah, yeah, what's being said there? So what should that, 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 that day one at Mount Sinai means that their, their I don't know if I'm misinterpreting this, but their rejection, that if they reject God, it's 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 based on just like the thought process, but because we've actually experienced it, we it's not as simple as that. Like there's a premise for a non-Jew to reject reject it because it hasn't been an experience. That happens to be a true point that he agrees with. Right. He, the Kohari king asks at a certain point. So after the Rabbi Huda Levi, and we, we spent you'd have to go back to the actual classes on the podcast on the, uh, on the Bet Midrash of the which we've got the previous room, where he tries to argue, where we develop the argumentation for accepting the Jewish experience, revelation. It's a very unique claim, not event, because that's assuming it's true. It's a very unique claim, historically, that we had a mass revelation. It's not a proof, but it's a very unique claim that can be developed. We develop it. But what's the Khuzari king doing here? The point that you're mentioning is the Khuzari, the Khuzari king says to Rabbi Yehuda, to the rabbi, wait, the way you're just describing this, only Jews are obligated to keep the tire. And he's like, yes. Only Jews are obligated because it was their ancestry, and that's part of the compelling nature of it. I owe Hakarasa Taif to God. God spoke to my ancestors. My ancestors were taken out of Egypt, not another person's ancestors. So there's a personal aspect to the relationship with Hashem, not just a, a logical structure that you should accept. It happened, accept. No, there's an intimate personal aspect of our relationship with God that Rabbi Yehuda Halevi is developing together. Once again, why is that so powerful? It's like an abstract logical argument. It's the, it's the emotive side of the argument as well. It's not just do what God says, it's adopt the mission that God laid at the feet of your ancestors. He, he took them out of Egypt. There's a relationship with God that is more than just God spoke to you. What he's doing over here is he's touching upon one of the really, really difficult ideas in religion. What is God? This is personifying him. What's the danger of personification when it comes to God? It means like bringing him down to earth. I cannot be Why is that a problem? Because he's not earthly. He's not a dude. Why is it dangerous <laughs> to, call them to have God having the dudish qualities? Because anyone can just say they're God. Right, but what you mean by God gets really watered down. When I say God, and I mean that most ultimate being, 
that which cannot be described. If you personify him, if you, if you concretize him, your God is no longer a God. It's a pagan God. It's Zeus, it's Aphrodite, it's Poseidon. It's no longer the God of the Jewish people. So what the king is saying here, he's almost trying to give an argument for the Rabbi Hudale. He's like, yes, the philosophers tell us God can't, and, and the philosophers believed in this abstract God. They didn't believe God changed, they believed God was perfect. And the Jews have that sort of idea of God as well. But what happened here? The Kuzari king is like saying to the rabbi, yeah, the idea of God is, from a philosophical standpoint, non-describable, but you have a mass revelation. You have, you have, you have God giving tablets. You can believe in a physical God, which is quite radical. Yes, yes. You can believe in a physical God. Why? Mm -hmm. Because God gave you tablets. People give tablets. This is the king speaking, remember. This isn't the rabbi. This is the king telling the person, you could get away with believing in a physical God. Why? Because it says in the Torah, and the Torah you just told me is really like authentic, and God gave you tablets. So God's kind of personable. He's somehow a thing. Do we find that compelling? Yeah. yeah. Yes. That God was a corporeal. Yes, yeah, Rabbi Huda is also on that same same front. It's different from Rambam. Rambam takes it to another level, which we'll talk about later. But Rabbi Huda Levi is 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 asking in the name of the king, you could say God is corporeal. Because one of the ideas that Rabbi Huda Levi always goes back to is the speculative nature of philosophy. Philosophy can't get you absolute truths. So he says here, you are justified in rejecting mere reasoning and speculation. If I give you a philosophical argument against the corporeality of God, what would be an argument against the corporeality of God? Sorry? So that would be an argument for corporeality. He'd be limited. Why? Because something that's corporeal is made of parts. If something is made of parts, what can I ask? What's holding the parts together? Meaning it's, it no longer becomes what the Jewish people mean by God. And the, the king is arguing, you could get away with that. Why? Because the Bible says God is basically, a, I mean, God gets angry, God gives, gives tablets. You can reject the philosophers. You can just accept the corporeality of God because your Bible said so. But what does the rabbi respond back to him? The rabbi, heaven forbid that I should assume what is against sense and reason. The first of the ten commandments. See, he's like, first of all, no, I don't reject reason. I, I, no, and then he starts to give an argument from a Jewish standpoint why I think God is incorporeal, and the corporeality of God. I mean, he, you're going to see him constantly oscillating between, on the one side, this transcendent form of God of the philosophers, and the intimate God that has a part to play in our world. That's the, often the balance that you'll find with Jewish thinkers. Do they want God to be this abstract, out there deity, or God is in the cup. For example, Hashem appears in the thorn bush. Why is it significant that Hashem appears in the thorn bush in uh, Shemais? That even the lowly thorn bush isn't absent of God. That's a message to, to Moshe. God didn't appear to Moshe on a, as a mountain or as a great tree, but on a thorn bush. That's the imminence of Hashem. The philosophers are the ones who's trying to structure how we approach Judaism are constantly jumping between the two and they'll emphasize one more than another you'll get that, those that are like every leaf that moves is god 
and you'll get others like, no, that's a bit too intimate. And then you'll get ones that go to the other extreme, like Maimonides, like, no, God doesn't really do things like that. And they both have advantages and they both have disadvantages. An advantage of distancing God is that you keep God more perfect, more one, less change. But the cost, no intimacy, no relationship. You follow? That's probably not the best thing for this time of night. It's like heavy stuff. Yes. Why believing God is more intimately involved? Like, why is that necessarily undermining His oneness or His greatness? Like, oh, does God does God just in a very simple way? Does God care about you? I think so. Did, was there a time where He didn't care about you? No. Will there be a time where He'll care about you more? No. In which case, the care God has for you is the same the care God has for me. Yes. In which case, if you love everybody. Yes. You don't love anybody. But mm. I feel like that's attributing very like human characteristics to God, that he has an infinite capacity for love. So. Okay, so in which case then, when we talk about God in the intimate sense, we don't actually know what we're talking about. So when you say love, I'm not trying, it's not a tricky game here. I'm not trying to, it, when you say love, you don't mean love. You mean some other godly thing. Yeah. So that's what, that's so the, the danger of intimifying God. We have to do that. We have to make God intimate. Otherwise we have no relationship with him. But at the same time, we have to understand that we don't quite mean, this is more what Rabbi Yehuda Levi does, is that we don't quite mean human terms. Maimonides will push it to the other extreme and say, no, don't even say God loves you. Why? Because you don't know what you're talking about. You can say God acts in love towards humanity, but there's a distance there. But he keeps more of a, what, for example, just take the philosophers, the philosophers of Rabbi Yehuda Levi. They were real monotheists. They said existence has always been. There's different ways of understanding the universe. Either the universe was created, or you look at the universe as being always existing. The philosophers looked at the world through the lens of eternity of matter. Why is that better? That's more monotheistic. Why? Because then God never changed. Think about creation. What are we saying? There was nothing, and then there was something. That implies God changed. On a very philosophical level, there's a cost there. The Torah says it, but if the Torah hadn't said it, it might be more monotheistic to say, no, existence had always been there. There's a tempting, it's tempting. If you want your God to be super perfect, any form of change is a cost. Now the Torah, we don't believe in monotheism to the, to the, to the rejection of everything else. But the, the idea of saying God never changes is more pure. But we also believe that God is, continuing creation like at every moment how those ideas play in for sure but yeah. i'm talking at this stage when we're talking about the nature of what we mean by hashem the extreme philosophers keep a more monotheistic vibe but they cost at the cost of any form of intimacy extreme intimacy let's call it christianity jesus you feel it you see it you can love jesus he's a person i've got ultimate intimacy but what is the cost God's a person. So what is, what is Rabbi Huda Levi going to be trying to do is trying to balance those two with attending more towards intimacy. I, I thought I just wanted to him, but I have a follow-up. No, so to this, okay. do you want to just ask a question? Then we'll... No, it wasn't a question. It was actually kind of linked to this week's parasha. She's, yeah, sure. Like about what you said about the future, about about the idea that not having, like not having chain, um, like, I will be who I will be. I mean, God doesn't even know who he's going to be yet because it depends on how he will act in the future. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. That, that would be against the idea of absolute monotheism. Against the philosophy. Yes, because yes, God's changing. So, for example, um, Rosh Hashanah Hirsch has a whole piece on this. He said, yes, the philosophers might be right in an absolute sense, but we can't live like that. And the Torah doesn't ask us to live like that. Because we don't only look at the, le- the world through the lens of philosophy, we look at the, lo- lens through the, the, tar- the world through the lens of the Torah. And the Torah is demanding we relate to Hashem as being personable. So we're justified in doing that. Because it relates to a truth. How do I formulate that truth? I don't know. And Rabbi Huda is actually going to touch in on that. When he talks about the miracles and how Hashem actually does the interacting, he's a skeptic, he's, a, he's an agnostic. Did Hashem give us the Torah? They'll say yes. And that's your life question is how? They'll say, I don't know. Which, once again, that's quite cool. Think about if Rabbi Huda Avlevi had had a doctrinal approach to how God gave the Torah. And then we realize that's kind of impossible. But he so it does begin the recognition of mercy, right? Yeah. So I guess we assume that, like, why, why is that an important question, I guess? M- meaning, the Jewish people heard the commandments from some of the commandments from God. What happened to the eardrums? They, I think they, 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 they so, so we, we, we're playing around with lots of different ideas now, but yeah. the, the, it's a good question. Like, what happened? Rabbi Huda Levi is going to say, I, I, I'm committed God's the one who did it, but I'm not going to tell you how he did it. Okay. That's not kind of amazing, though, with the fact that it was a lot of religions, it was one person, no witnesses, having a dream, having a dream. Yeah. Okay. Whereas here, these specifically weren't there, okay, maybe there were some more, but like people, but all the all our Jewish ancestors were not just one Jewish, not just Moshe, it was all Kamasra. Yes, yes, for sure. That's one of the foundational ideas that Rabbi Yehuda Levi will, gives us as the basis for accepting the Jewish tradition, the rational foundation for accepting the experience of the Jewish people. But the reason why it's it's important, uh, let, let's, let's, let's read through it inside. Is, yeah, everybody good? All right, let's go through it. The rabbi, heaven forbid that I should... Assume what is against sense and reason. The first of the Ten Commandments enjoins the belief in divine providence. The second commands contains, command contains the prohibition of worship of other gods, association of any other being with him. The prohibition to represent him in statues, forms, images, or pers- any personified meaning. Rabbi Huda Lady says, well, the first, I've got a commandment that says I'm not allowed to do that. That's point number one. The king said to him, you should be able to personify God. Rabbi Huda Lady, and each one of these points is going to be significant. I don't go against what's against reason. Heaven forbid, that language is quite strong. He's believing in religion. He's believing in God, but he doesn't think he's obje- what his ideas are counter to reason. He's not asking us to accept something contradictory. He accused the Christians of doing this. Why was he accusing the Christians of doing this? And the reason why this is significant, it gives you a principle. As a Jew, you're not asked to believe in things that don't make sense. What doesn't make sense in Catholicism, from Rabbi Huda Levi's point of view, with greatest respect to any Christians that might be listening to this, the Trinity. Why is the Trinity contradictory? Because it's contradictory. It's the greatest mystery. It's the gr- Yeah, but it still doesn't make sense. Now, there is ways of explaining it. What God is three in one person, and there are ways of explaining the complexity of it, and it's sort of making sense, but it's, it's, it's a very difficult pill to swallow. God is one and three at the same time. We call that a contradiction. Judaism isn't asking us to believe in contradictions. He considers that wrong. And you say, well, Simi, seas don't split. That's not a contradiction. To say that the seas split can be a miracle. Miracles make sense. But 
We're not asked to believe contradictory things and then slap a miracle on it and make it work. Never in Judaism you ask that which doesn't make sense. To give an example, if I, I we don't think God can make a square circle. I, to, to say there are modern Jewish thinkers that try and say you can, but we're talking about he's, he's, he's an authority. You don't get a bigger authority than Rabbi Huda Ali. Can God make a square circle? No. It's a contradiction. A square isn't a circle. In which case we don't attribute to God things that don't make sense. And that's a really powerful tool in your toolkit of looking at the world, which is what does this mean in terms of how we approach the world? I can immerse myself in the wisdom of the world. I can immerse myself in the nature of the world because it's not that the world is this Gaia, uh, Gaia, Maya, illusory mix up that Hashem, but no, there's something reasonable and rational about the world that as a religious person, I'm supposed to be able to understand. Well, maybe like miracles could be saying something that's, it doesn't make sense, I guess. But, but it's not contradictory. Yeah. For example, you could claim, I don't think this makes sense, a virgin birth is contradictory. I'm not sure this is, I haven't really thought about it because. Why is that even okay? It is a contradiction. Yeah, it is a contradiction. It's like a, 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 because by definition, if someone's, you could say, I don't know what you would say, but that would be Huda Levi's issue with. The Christians is this. Now he doesn't think they can't argue for it philosophically. They could try, but it's a big pill to swallow. And what does Rabbi Huda Levi say in the language of the king when he meets these these uh, religious experiences that are contradictory? What does he say? I wasn't born a Christian, so don't expect me to start philosophizing how it makes sense. Which means he's leaving space for the the Catholics reading this to say, okay, you maybe you can make sense of it. That was because you were born into it, so you feel compelled to. I wasn't born into it, so I'm not compelled to. The Jewish religious experience has a universal nature to it. Its point is, it's obviously going to be more compelling to the Jewish people, but it's a universe, it's a claim of a mass revelation, which is quite unique historically. And there's a reason why, which I, I can't go through the details in this class, but two classes earlier, I tried to develop some of the modern developments of how this is an interesting argument that can compel you from a point of view of reason to adopt the experience. So, yeah. And so, can we get back to that at the end? And just to read a little bit, to the, 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 just uh, repeat the question: the square circle thing. Had actually, not, but we'll touch upon it now. Uh, it, no, it's actually it's it's, it's longer. It's longer. I'll say a, an interesting response to it, which is a great tool because once another another thing, what I try and do in these classes, there are certain philosophical tools that are useful to have. And it might be worth us discussing this now. Can God make a rock too heavy for him to carry? No. R, R, R. Excellent. Well, not excellent. It's an excellent question. People love that question because it seems to get the religious person. People say, yes, he can. People say, no, he can't. What is the actual? It doesn't make sense. That's the answer. It's not a question. Can God blah? No. Yes, he can. It's so in, in, in the physical world. So what, are, what is the atheist doing not not that an actual atheist is asking you the question when a person asks the question to a religious person to try and trip him up what is he saying can god do x when you said god originally what did you mean by that did you mean zeus poseidon or did you mean the god that i take as being ultimate so in which case if you're using my language what are you actually asking can god that can do everything not do everything that's not a question can green be happy on a tuesday Green isn't a thing that we don't describe joy or sadness to. 
it's a category error. And I kind of have to ask, answer such a question. Ah, right. So if we, uh, right. so that, that's an example of a category. You could give different interpretations to those sort of things, but it's not a question I can answer. In a similar way, I don't have to answer a question that doesn't make sense. Can God make a, no i'd rather be more forward than that i say no i don't want i don't think you're asking me a genuine question okay so ask me the question uh, how would you i don't necessarily love the way that they answer what he said like um can god be god no, because he already was perfect. So how can God, but then that's also limiting God. So it's the same question. But that's actually my definition. Is, but then there's nothing like a combo of like, oh, we can't. So I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to, I just am trying to like, yeah, I still want to like get out of it. But so basically what saying is, is like, you have to think dialectically and hold two truths to be correct because the Romans came up with like this one premise that has to like logically fall from that. And that God can have um, an active and a static I think it's like a Kabbalah idea, like perfection. So he can be perfect, but then also increase his perfection simultaneously. And like, but I feel like that's, it's a, it's a reasonable question. And I feel like the answer I saw in this Kabbalah book, it wasn't satisfactory. So I still am not kind of why the question isn't reasonable. Yes. So, 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 uh, sorry, yes. The way I went to school was that God created everything. God created the concept of perfection. So how could God be limited to that concept. You may say a piece of pottery that is either red or blue, but can you be defined by that red or blue? No, you can't, you created that. But then God must be logical. We're saying that God is to So, so, can I, can I, it's a, so there is there, so there is a, there is a point. When, when you open up the door to, when you open up the door to more Kabbalistic type of thinking, you get into more, it, it becomes more problematic because Kabbalistic, the Kabbalistic mind has a more of a, I don't want to call it a mythology about what happened to creation, but it has like an actual like um, cosmogony of creation, like things broke and they need to be fixed and all this sort of language which compels us like, why does God need them fixed? But even from a more, let's call it a more philosophical standpoint, we do believe there is a certain purpose to existence. How can there be a purpose for God? which is why some Jewish philosophers say you can't actually talk about a reason for why God created the world. Mm -hmm. Why can't you talk about a reason for why God created the world or existence? Because that reason would be something he would be subservient to. If I have a reason for doing something, that reason is above me. I'm, I'm fulfilling that reason because I want it. When we talk about God, it's a strange sort of language to talk about God needing something. So we can put ourselves in certain philosophical puzzles unnecessarily. What I'm talking about, so for example, a way of answering that question is that when we say, uh, another way of expressing this is, can God, I can do something God can't do. I can commit suicide. God can't. I can do something God can't do. I can learn something new. That is a genuine skill. God can't do that. Well, the response to that would be, well, when we say God is perfect, we don't mean can do everything. We mean has all attributes of perfection. My ability to learn something is an outgrowth of my imperfection. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. That's a way of countering the claim because on the face of things like, yeah, me, not God. The what I'm trying to do with the, um, and, and can God's perfection be more perfect? Well, I'm sure the, the, the chap you're talking about did a, a, an interesting puzzle, but simply speaking, no, 
No, perfection is the end point. How can something be more perfect? In which case, perhaps to say God can become more perfect, you don't want to commit yourself to. Not you. I'm not talking about you personally. But the term perfection means that which is perfect. If you want to say there's different aspects of perfection, maybe, I don't know what the chat did. But from our point of view, what the philosophers would say is you shouldn't be talking about God in the positive to begin with. There are certain aspects of God that we don't want to talk about in the positive because we don't actually know what we're talking about. So to play this out, when I say God is perfect, there's a problem with that language. What do I mean by perfect? I have a certain human construct of perfection and I'm attributing that to God. But that's not right because I don't know what I mean when I attribute human perfection to God. So what they would say is, you speak about Hashem in the negative. Hashem doesn't lack Hashem isn't lacking perfection. Or Hashem isn't lacking, um, Hashem doesn't lack knowledge. I don't think God has knowledge. He isn't lacking something. Thereby, I'm not describing God in the positive, but I'm still describing what I mean by God. Even according to Maimonides, to say God exists is problematic. Because what do you mean by exist? You have a certain framework. When you say exist, you mean even spiritual existence isn't what we mean by God. We mean something far more refined than that. So that, that would be a way of dealing with the idea of perfection. I didn't say God was perfect. Of course, in conversation, we say God is perfect. But if we're talking philosophically, I didn't say that. Not, not, not that you thought I did. The response is, I didn't say that. My, I don't describe my God actively. When we're in, uh, you're in different modes of speaking. Sometimes you're in the mode of speaking, God is great. We, we speak like that in the Torah. We speak like that in the... Um, when we daven, but if we're getting philosophical and we have to remember what what languages we're speaking what modes we're speaking in and it's 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 dodgy at times if people are shifting without telling us they're shifting but if a person says to me well you believe there's a purpose to existence that's yeah i think there's a reason for me being here well if god wants you to do that then without you doing that you're not achieving this goal so whoa, whoa, at what point did i see i i am describing god actively as having a purpose or how I can talk about things from my point of view. God acts in the world that implies I have a reason for being here. I'm not describing God's essence in that description. And but that's very, as I said, that's very philosophical. I remove the intimacy in my relationship with God if I never describe him actively. That's why Maimonides pushes more in that direction of not describing God positively. Rabbi Yehuda Levi does that as well. We'll talk about that next week. But he has certain times where we do describe God in a positive sense, not in his essence, but we do talk about God positively. There are different modes of us talking about Hashem. It gets more complicated. But we want, on the one hand, when we talk about God actively, we could put ourselves into a philosophical puzzle or pretzel, because then we're like, well, if God is perfect, then that's, that's the end of the story. But we know but we do that with awareness. We do that like when it's needed to when we need to connect, we, we, we're active. Meaning like when in our conversation with Hashem, when we daven, of course, we speak yeah. about God as active. And we, but we, but that's, to, are you saying that you need to kind of approach that with this, it, with this, like understanding that, that it's a, that like a tool to use then, like to build yes, this connection, yes. but not something to be binary, like a binary belief that like defines God. Correct, correct, correct. But that, but that's why the people in the Torah, the whole Torah, do we have any, like the Torah is not any like a, a theology, they say the Torah is an anthropology. The Torah is a description of what man is to do, not the essence of God. It's like a mystical text. 
But just to just to just they no, they wouldn't disagree with that. That's what the Torah is. Oh. Kabbalah comes later, okay. or, or comes along with it, but depending on. But I'm talking about the Bible per se. But uh, just to just to because we're, we're running out of time, just to really touch upon that point, just to focus on the idea of why is it a contradiction in term? Why is it not asking a question? Is that when you ask, can God create a rock that He can't carry? You're saying, can God? My term, my definition of God, that which is ultimate. Do something that wouldn't be ultimate. Can God be A and not A at the same time? That's a contradiction. That's not a, that's not a, that's not an, a, a real question. No implies that you've given me a genuine question. You said, yeah. Yeah. So, so play it out again. If I ask a person, can um, A be not A? I don't think it's a genuine question. Well, actually, can A be not A? That would be no, it can't. Because it's something that he can't lift. No, because he can do whatever he wants. But right, but it validates the question. Meaning, if if we had to put it in theist, atheistic terms, the person asking the question to trip up the religious person is in essence asking, can God, this stupid idea that some people believe in, create something that he can't carry? If you had your definition of God as that which can do everything, if you if you said that when you asked the question, you would you you, not you the person would realize they're asking to negate the thing they opened up with. Can God that who can do absolutely everything, no limitation, become that which can't do everything? You already said he can't do. Everything. You said he can do everything. <laughs> oh, the person asking the question. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yes, tricky. Yeah. So, so in, in essence, the person who's asking the question from their point of view, it makes complete sense. Can God, this like idea, which people believe in, do something that he can't, like create something that will limit him even more? Maybe. Yeah, for sure. Let's ask it in the context of Zeus. Can Zeus create a rock that he can't carry? Yeah, for sure. Why? Because there's a lot of things Zeus can't do. Zeus can't give up, not give in to his temptation the whole time. I know Zeus is limited in that sense. But if I have said, can that which has no limitation be limited. What, I mean, what did, why did you open up with that which has no limitation? Then you put that in at the beginning of your story, be limited. No, by your own way of asking the question, that's not a question. That could be a response to that question. Yes. Well, uh, it, would it, be, it, would it be a cop out if I asked you, um, um, it, it, uh, does the number six get angry? So, 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 so you're, you're right. From the point of view of having a conversation with someone, if that person goes, "Can God do this?" and I'm like, "I reject your question." You're absolutely right. I'll come, I'll come across as the uh, as, a, as a stupid religious person. If I sat down with him and said, "Let me, okay, let me understand where you're coming from," when I use the when you use the term God, what do you mean by that? I don't know what religious people believe in God. Okay, but I'm a specific religious person. It, correct. It's by the way, that's another important tool in conversation with people. It's not only about what you believe, it's not it's also about how you're able to articulate your beliefs in strengthening your own convictions. If you can defend the way you look at the world, not because people are going to come and attack you, but also building your own self-confidence. If I can talk about Jewish ideas in a way that I find that I could speak to someone else about it, even if you never will. Your own religious personality is built just to use the same principle. When a person says to you, you go in university and a person says, you, you believe in God. 
a good question should be asked is like, oh, what idea of God do you have there? What it, that word God is a placeholder for what? And if he says, well, look, I'm a Christian, um, what Christians believe? A Jew can say, actually, no, I don't believe in God then. That's genuine. And obviously, if a Christian asks me, do I believe in God? I'll say yes, because I'm not a weirdo. But if we're having this sort of conversation, um, you, you would say, well, actually, no, I don't want to commit myself to that notion of God. But you have to define your terms as best you can. So back to the, the argument, can God do this, that, and the other? Let's break it down, my friend. Can God, what do we mean by that? That which is ultimate, that which has no limitation, that which is beyond description and perfection itself. Do something that severely limits him. Well, then it's not that anymore. Then why did you open with this? So you're asking, can this not be this? That's not a question. That's just saying that, that that's not a question. I don't have to commit myself to a non-question. And hopefully the chap would understand that that's, that's a genuine way of responding. Because the similar to a square circle, a square isn't a circle. Can God create a square circle? Once again, a square is not a circle. He can't do that which isn't, a, a square is not a circle. Can God make that? Well, I'm, I am committed to, am I committed to answering any random question as long as the word God is replied to it? Well, does God know? It's a good deep question. Does God know if the number six is happy? No, mm, just, no seriously, does he? Uh, yes. Why am I committing myself to that? No, the number six isn't the sort of thing that gets happy. No, but maybe in God's eye, six is happy and only God knows about that. We really want to go down that road? No, that's, that's not a question. My understanding of the word six does not have the adjective of joy to it. But no, God should know. You can envision a person speaking like this. But no, I don't think we have to go down that rabbit hole because if we go, if you go down that rabbit hole, there is no end to the conversation. Every single imaginary Unicorns. Does God know if unicorns are in general happy? Like, do, do unicorns exist? And if they did exist, are they happy? I, do you see what this could be a really, really dodgy rabbit hole to go down? Guys, thank you all so much for.